welcome to Share the Journey. Today's podcast, we'll be talking with Dr. Warren Latham from Georgia. Dr. Latham has been a Methodist minister for many years and has had and is having a most interesting life in his service to Christ. This podcast is the first of three with Dr. Latham, and we'll cover the beginning stages of his call to ministry, family life, and ends with a discussion of tragedy his family has faced. It is uplifting, inspiring, and challenging. If you have ever faced the loss of a loved one, I'm certain you will relate to his story as Dr. Warren Latham shares his journey. Welcome, Dr. Latham. Thank you. Good to see you again, Dave. You know, when I first heard you, I could have sworn you were a hellfire and brimstone Baptist preacher. Yeah, we, you know, the what we have traditionally called the evangelical church, whether Methodist or Baptist or uh, uh, Pentecostal, uh, preaching, uh, strong preaching is central to what we've been as a Protestant uh, movement. And uh, I grew up with that, and that's really all I know how to do. That's true. I I remember growing up with guys that could, could preach. In fact, in my home church where I was uh, raised, um, our pastor only preached probably one time every quarter, and he always wow. had he always had guys that that were coming in that were all part of uh, the group that we were part of, and they were fire pastoring type guys. They were just terrific. Uh, growing up to hear yeah. hear that kind of thing, so so tell me how how the Lord grabbed you. Well, um, when when I was a child, I was raised in a devout Methodist Christian home. My mother was raised Baptist, but when she married my dad, she switched over to Methodist. And uh, I'm eighth generation Methodist, and so I didn't have much choice about uh, where I would land to start with. And uh, one of the things I remember is. Um, an old man lived across the street from us. Um, name was Reno. Uh, it would be Reno anywhere else, but where I was, it was Reno. And um, he was a retired sharecropper, poor as dirt. And he gave me my first pocket knife when I was about five or six years old. Or country boy, that was a big deal. Gave me my first New Testament. Um, and then he died when I was eight. And um, he had such a profound witness uh, he was a singer, uh, old uh, shape note uh, kind of singing. Oh, uh, sure! Wow. And and um, uh, but but the Sunday of his funeral, I realized that Sunday morning that I was soul sick. Now I didn't know how to describe that, so I faked a bellyache and actually got out of going to church. It was a rare thing in my family. That afternoon, my father went to the funeral, and my mother stayed home with her sick child. And during that time, she realized there was something else going on. And she asked me what was happening. And I said, well, I'm just real upset over Reno. And she said, why? I said, well, I know where Reno is, but if I were to die, I don't know where I'd go. And so she just simply led me in the sinner's prayer there at my daddy's lounge chair. And I received Christ that day. And uh, I've never doubted that. It was real. And um, then when I was 10 in camp meeting, I clearly heard the call of God to preach. I didn't understand much about what that meant. Certainly, if I'd understood, if I'd known then what I know now, I probably would have said no to that. But um, <laughs> I, I accepted that call and never doubted it. It was always clear. Now, in high school, I tried to get away from living that, that call mm -hmm. and had a, was pretty successful at doing that. <laughs> but um, 
thankfully, between my junior and senior year of high school, the Lord grabbed me again and and um, uh, uh, got kind of back on the straight and narrow. And, then, and when I was 19, I started preaching full time. Wow, 19. Yeah. Was that at your own home church or, or were you? Uh, I don't I don't actually remember where I preached my first sermon. I know where I spoke the first time. I'm, I'd be kind of embarrassed to call it a sermon, but it was actually <laughs> in um, February of uh, 1972. I'd been seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'd read about it and understood a lot about it. Uh, uh, read a lot of books and a lot of scripture and was seeking that and on a Friday night in February, experienced just a great outpouring of spirit in my life, a really life-changing kind of event. And after sort of recovering from that, that night, I said, Lord, you called me to preach. Give me a place to preach. And um, that was, you know, that was just simple prayer. That was on Friday night. On Monday, one of my classmates in college asked me to come speak to his um, uh, youth group at his little Baptist church. And uh, that was the first time I spoke, really. And as I said, I'd be kind of embarrassed to call it a sermon. I'm not sure what I did. But from that day in February until I went away to Asbury College in September the 21st, I believe it was, 1972, I preached an average of 13 times a week, and I never asked for a place to preach. Uh, the Lord just opened doors. It was miraculous how it happened. And then within a month of going to Asbury College, in, uh, University now in Kentucky, I was pastoring a church. And so... Haven't looked back. Yeah, I, I I used to do a lot of preaching now and then, too, when I was on the road traveling and did a lot of concert stuff. Yeah. And oftentimes it wasn't just music, but I would I would do a sermon while I was there. And there's there's a few of the early ones. I'm like you that I hope nobody remembers. I was there. I was there and did. Them, yeah. you know? I, I'm glad we didn't live stream back then. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> or even recordings, you know, back yeah. back then, you know, we were just starting to put out cassettes and tapes you know well, yeah I was, I was really before i was really before that and um learned to preach before most churches had pa systems yeah so I, as you know you've heard me i have a projecting voice and can can be heard in most settings and learn to preach that way and um the first camp meeting i preached in i started preaching and a guy on the back row got up and came up and pushed me aside from the pulpit reached under the pulpit and turned off the little Radio Shack PA system. <laughs> He'd had enough, huh? <laughs> oh well. Well, that's interesting. Then tell me a little bit more about how how you, you met your wife and when and all those kind of things. Yeah, uh, I I did my first two years of uh, college at Reinhardt in uh, Waleska, Georgia, uh, because I could stay at home and work and save money. I didn't have any money. No one in my family had ever been to college, and we didn't know how to negotiate that, how to do that. And so I'd work full-time and preach full-time. <laughs> uh, most nights I'd be preaching, and finally I had to quit working because the preaching was too intensive. But um, did the first two years commuting to Reinhardt and then uh, saved enough money for one year of college uh, to go to Asbury to have money for tuition, room, and board. And um, went there because my pastor had recommended that. I didn't, I didn't apply anywhere else. Uh, went there, and and um, the um, a girl from high school that I had reconnected with during the summer when I was preaching revival, she would go with me sometimes and sing and play guitar and, and uh, um, be a part of the revival. Uh, we we never were romantically interested in one another at all. At least at least I was not. I never felt like she was. Um, but I said to her, when I get to Asbury now, you need to introduce me to a nice girl because I'd broken up with a girl. And um, 
so her roommate happened to be from Cedartown, and we would eat uh, meals together in the cafeteria. And I discovered she not only was beautiful, but uh, I really did like her. And um, went out on a date in, in um, October and got married the next August. Um, we've been together in ministry now, and in August will be 50 years. Wow, good for you. Yeah. That's uh, that's a rarity. You and I share that together. I'm at 46 years with my wife, and uh, that's all God's grace. It's, it has nothing to do with me. <laughs> well, it, yeah, that's assuming that between now and August, she doesn't kill me, but uh, we'll just trust. <laughs> I doubt that. If she's lasted this long, Joni and I joke about that and basically say, well, we've gone this far. There's no use, there's no use quitting now. <laughs> so... I think the avoidance of jail will keep her from doing that. There you go. There you go. And then you um, you have, I know, a son that's in ministry now and another son. Uh, I don't know if you've had any other kids or not. Do you? Are those the only two you had? Or yeah, we, had, we had two boys. Uh, they were 17 months apart. Ray was the older and then Jared. And um, uh, we were blessed to, to um, have two healthy uh uh, competent, intelligent kids, uh, pretty well adjusted, and we had a we had a happy home, and we're blessed to to have that. We tried to raise our boys um, in the church and um, uh, to be effective in, in as a family and growing in grace and, and uh, modeling for them what it really means to be a Christian at home. I had seen too many examples of incongruency between the public preacher. And the man or woman at home, and um, I didn't want to do that. I, I, one of the one of the crises of faith I had early in ministry was I had to understand that God looked for authenticity. I now understand that to be holiness, but a um, a wholeness. And uh, I determined uh, early on that I was going to be real in the pulpit at home, wherever I was. And if people didn't want that, I need to find that out when I was in my 20s, not when I was in my 50s. And so I really worked hard at um, uh, authenticity in in every aspect of my life and tried to avoid any duplicity or any playing of roles. And um, there's there's some downside to that. There's a price you pay for that. But in terms of raising the kids, it had huge rewards. Uh, We were very blessed uh, with with our children. That's so. that's the integrity. It's the wholeness. It's the authenticity. Um, again, I, I eventually understood that's that's what the word holiness means. To be holy is to be whole, to be complete. Yeah. And um, uh, so I, I tried to do that. And and both of my boys um, uh, expressed a call to ministry. One early on, after his uh, little prodigal journey that he took, and um, uh, the other uh, much later. But he experienced the call early. He just he saw. One of the problems with growing up in a parsonage or a pastorium, I think Baptists call it, um, is you see the sausage made, you see the the inside of the church, and it's not very pretty often. And so my younger son didn't want to be involved with that, and uh, so he resisted the call for some time. But eventually, uh, he's now planting a church in East Cobb uh, in North Georgia. You know, Paul says that we live in a corruptible body, and until we receive our incorruptible body, we are all susceptible uh, to temptation, to sin, and uh, even leadership in churches. In fact, I think especially leadership in churches uh, face temptations, uh, face the ego issues. Uh, we face all the things that uh, 
prove to people that we all have feet of clay and we need to rely upon the Lord. It's unfortunate that there are some in leadership who fall. There are some in leadership who fail. Uh, There are some in leadership who disillusion other people and disillusion themselves. Jared, our younger one, literally lost 10 years of his life. I'll tell you why, uh, what prompted that in a minute. But part of it had to do with uh, watching some of the things that went on in church. And we had a good experience. I mean, there were some rough spots, but nothing like you described. And and uh, we were we were always uh, well-received and well-treated by the vast majority of people. But even in that, there's enough ugliness that if you want to focus on it, it can, it can be debilitating. Yeah, it is. And it can be. Um, we had several good stopovers. I mean, I was seven years at a church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It was probably the best staff I ever worked with. And it was, yeah. it was a great time. I probably should have never left there, but I got tempted by a church in California. But uh, so we've had some good times at churches and then, you know, mixed in with the other. There's been a couple of places that I really wish I hadn't gone. <laughs> you know? yeah, I so we touched base on, on your, your sons. Tell me about your son that uh, went down in the airplane. Yeah, um, our, our older son, Ray, I'll back up just a little bit. Um, Ray was a poet and, and musician and uh, quite a talented uh, natural leader in a lot of ways. And um, in 1994, a young man by the name of Carlos Gonzalez was shown into my office by a church member, and Carlos was from Valencia, Venezuela. He'd come to the United States to learn how to be a pastor. He'd sold everything. He worked at the Ford plant in Venezuela. Those were good days in Venezuela, by the way. And he worked at the Ford plant, sold everything. He and his young wife came to the United States and wound up, by the grace of God, in my office. And he asked me if I would teach him how to be a pastor. He didn't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. Um, had no opportunity in Venezuela. And um, I said, I would. The Lord just spoke to me and said, you need to work with this young man. And um, I said, I will if you'll start a Spanish language service in our congregation. And he agreed to do that. Turned out he was one of the most gifted young ministers I've ever ever known. Our bishop took note of him and his ability, and our bishop had been a missionary to Cuba. He was the last Methodist missionary to get out of Cuba. They were shooting at his plane when he left during the revolution. Wow. And so he had a great heart for uh, uh, Hispanic and Latino ministries. And he said to Carlos, if you will go back to Venezuela and start the Methodist work there, I'll send you through seminary and pay for your seminary. And so Carlos agreed to do that. Had to enroll at Reinhardt to pick up a couple of courses that were lacking in his university degree. And our son, Ray, was at Reinhardt. They became close friends. Ray started playing the congas and the um, Hispanic uh, band, worship band. And um, then Carlos uh, arranged for a mission trip in May of uh, 1996 to Venezuela to start talking with pastors there about starting the Methodist Church. He hadn't started seminary yet, but he wanted to go ahead and get, get the process started. Our son Ray went with him, as well as Roger and Dana Lane, uh, members of our church. And when they were returning, they got on the Vajet uh, flight in Miami that crashed in the Everglades. They were all killed May 11th of 1996. And of course, our, um, um, our interest in Venezuela died right there. We were caught up in uh, uh, grief. I'd been a pastor, I guess, then 30 years, but I had no idea what grief was. Sure. And um, uh, the, 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 the dark now, the soul I'd read about, I experienced. Mm. And um, um, so we, the, the, the connection of Venezuela died 
right there. And we had, we had to learn how to live um, with brokenness like we, we could never have imagined. I, I remember, Dave, um, because it was all in the news, and it was a, I was at a mega church in Atlanta, um, uh, news reporters were coming to the house all the time, and there was one reporter that came out and asked me some questions. And then he left, and after his cameraman put the camera away, he walked back up the driveway, and he said, I want to talk with you just a minute, Pastor. I said, okay. He said, we lost my brother, and he told me the age. And he said, from then on, we measured time from before mm-hmm. John, say John's death. Yes. And after. And he said, uh, nothing's ever going to be the same for you, and you need to know that. Um, well, I had no idea how accurate that was. In, in fact, the Later on that year, my uh, uh, one of my leaders in my church, one of my trusted leaders, came up to me and said, uh, Warren, what are you going to be doing five years from now? And I said, well, Jerry, I expect to be doing what I'm doing now. It's what I've always done, pastoring a church. He said, yeah, I know you expect that. And he said these words, life-changing events tend to be life-changing. And you've had a life-changing event. I wonder what impact that's going to have. Yeah, good question. And it made me start thinking about the next thing in life and in ministry. And that was very helpful, but yeah, it's, it's a before and after. And, and, and that event was so tragic for our younger son, Jared, so traumatic. Um, I think we failed him in some ways in that uh, we didn't help him get the kind of counseling he should have gotten. We, uh, uh, we did get him to counseling, but we, we were not as uh, uh, focused on as we should have been. Frankly, we, we were too wrapped up in our own grief to really know how to help sure. him. And uh, so it, uh, it really cost him about 10 years of his life. And um, he's 45, I think now, um, in terms of maturity, he's about 35. And so he really just stopped. And if you don't deal with grief, you stay there. Yeah, you freeze. Sure. And, and he just stopped at that point and did not pick up again until the Lord intervened in his life. Um, actually in Venezuela, he was down there, um, uh, visiting with us in Venezuela, and the Lord got a hold of him down there. The healing started, but it was 10 years after the, the uh, event. We've known several people personally who have experienced similar loss in their lives. Uh, children, uh, family members that were suddenly taken away. And what you're saying is very true. It becomes a focal point of change in their life. And I know of people that have talked about well, this is before they died, and this is after they died, before and after, and it always becomes a focal point of change for their life, and their whole life centers around that moment in time. Yeah, and I can I can tell you, I mean, you, you got some people listening to you today who are, de- who are dealing with grief. Yeah. Um, I don't think you ever get over deep grief. You learn to live with it. Yeah. But the reality of May the 11th, 1996, can come back at me with the, with the weight of an elephant. Sure. And it's like it's sitting on my chest. And, and um, uh, it just suddenly happens. And now, thankfully, it doesn't last a long time now, after 26 years, um, uh, 27, what it is. It doesn't last a long time. But it can happen out of the blue, unexpectedly. I can be sitting at a red light and see a dog was been run over and start tearing up. Now, uh, some people would say, well, that's because you're crazy. Well, probably, but grief makes you that way. And uh, that's, yeah. that's just part of the reality. 
When I lost my dad, I was 35 years of age mm -hmm. and uh, we were best of friends. Yeah. You know, he sang with my groups. I have albums wow. with he and I on it and all that. And up until then, my whole philosophy of, of music and what I did was more or less performance driven. Mm -hmm. um, and I was a good for, performer. I grew up on a platform since the time I was eight playing keyboard. Right. And um, when he died, uh, my whole demeanor changed yeah. uh, as far as what worship meant to me. It was like all of a sudden, um, there, there was something to do with heaven in my heart that said, you know what? I'm worshiping the King of Kings. My dad is there enjoying him in person. And to me, heaven became more real. Yeah. And all of a sudden I discovered my music had changed. Yeah. I no longer was trying to play just fancy. I was trying to become the worship leader by worshiping first myself. Yeah. And my wife, my wife saw the real change in it. My kids saw the real change in it. My kids used to tease me about the fact that I could hardly lead worship without a yeah. tear. <laughs> and uh, it's a, and that's the point in my life. It hey, changed. Funny story about that. I, I was um, young and foolish in a lot of ways, uh, preaching and pastoring. And often I would tear up and be embarrassed that I would just uh, tear up. And it didn't have anything to do with this. Was way before Ray was killed, just the the glory of the Lord would would fall on me, and I just sure. I just couldn't function hardly. And it was embarrassing because, um, you, you know, great preachers don't do that. I never saw Billy Graham do that. You know, uh, they don't do that. So <laughs> so one day I just said, Lord, take this crying away from me, please. And he did. And I realized after a while that I was not feeling at all what I had been feeling. And there was yeah. a dryness and emptiness that um, I didn't like. And I remember very vividly saying, Lord, if you want me to do nothing but stand in front of people and cry, I'm willing to do that. And he restored that. And, and uh, I learned to value uh, that. And it's, it's a part of, I think, a part of what I was talking about earlier, the authenticity, the integrity, uh, uh, the transparency. Yeah, I haven't talked to my kids about that in a long time. I wonder if they ever got over you know, wanting to tease me about it. Cause I'd, I'd come home, you know, and on the way home, they go, well, dad, you didn't make it again today. <laughs> you cried again. Yeah, I've got a, I've got an associate who works with us in Venezuela now who is the most tender hearted man. He's my age and just so gifted, uh, uh, worked in the secular world all his life, but is devoted to this ministry now. But if he ever starts talking about what the Lord's doing in Venezuela, you know, he's going to start crying because he's got such a tender heart. This wraps up the first of three podcasts with Dr. Warren Latham. I think you've already sensed a genuine follower of Christ in our conversation. And believe me, it gets even better as we begin to open up more areas of influence and ministry Dr. Latham is involved in. God has worked in his heart to open up the mission field of Venezuela. And that will be discussed as we continue to share the journey with Dr. Warren Latham. Now, be sure to enroll for notices of new podcasts by simply sharing your email with us via the link provided. We will never sell or allow others to use your email addresses, but it will be for our exclusive use only. Now, thank you for spending valuable time with us. We'd appreciate your helpful feedback. Until next time, when we will share the journey once more.